The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. This year is the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment and the American Civil Liberties Union. But you may not know the name of a woman who co-wrote the Equal Rights Amendment and co-founded the ACLU, Crystal Eastman. A new biography may change that. Amy Aronson, the author of Crystal Eastman, A Revolutionary Life, joins me now. When you look at Crystal Eastman and what she accomplished in so many areas, why is it that her name is not really well known today? Well, I think one of the reasons, really the main reason that Crystal Eastman is not so well known today is, oddly enough, paradoxically enough, because she was so active uh, in so many different areas. Eastman, I really look at her as a kind of an early model or a, a proto-intersectional activist. That is to say that she was uh, committed to multiple movements. She identified with multiple social justice movements at one time, and she never really prioritized one over the other. Um, she always was trying to bridge these multiple movements, try to bring them together under one vast emancipatory rubric. And that, in practice, ended up making her, you know, something of an iconoclast or a gadfly in almost every different movement, every different organization to which she was committed. She talked about socialism and internationalism and maternalism with the feminists. She talked about race and she talked about class with the internationalists and the anti-war activists. And she was always kind of bringing up these issues, trying to bring together all these different groups to ally themselves around the ways in which they were all unequal. And although this was a unifying vision, um, a very hopeful vision, it, it sometimes worked to divide people, to divide loyalties. And I think that over time, you know, what happens to historical memory and what happens when um, scholars and others are constructing narratives is it makes it complicated. It makes it um, difficult to, you know, kind of figure out where she stands. And as a consequence, I think she has, at least I found in my research, that um, she has been sort of moved to the margin of every organization and movement in which she was actually, you know, a significant voice and a leader, um, and slowly, in some cases, kind of edged out of those histories um, of those movements and of those organizations. Virginia was just the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, which she co-authored. Tell us about her involvement with the Equal Rights Amendment and what led her there. Well, Eastman was a founding member of the National Women's Party, which uh, after the vote was won in 1920 is is the organization that, you know, that drafted um, the Equal Rights Amendment. She was the first person that Alice Paul and Lucy Burns contacted um, on the advice of of Jane Addams to start the organization. Um, And she remained one of the most outspoken voices, particularly in the founding years, 1913, 1914, of the National Women's Party. And she, you know, went on to do more work in the anti-war movement uh, during 
during the war years, and then later went on to to publish and co-publish uh, the Liberator magazine after the war in 1918, but returned to the fold, returned to kind of primarily working on suffrage and women's issues after 1920 when the vote was won. And the ERA was, was really an effort by the organization to put forward a single unifying piece of legislation, much like the suffrage amendment was, that could solve the myriad problems of inequality that women faced in every aspect of their lives. But it was very controversial. One of the main reasons was that in removing and proposing to remove all gender differences from the law, it would eradicate all of the labor legislation that many progressive women and labor women had worked for decades to try to institute the eight-hour day and other protections for women laborers. And as a consequence, it kind of split progressive women and many former suffragists from the National Women's Party, from the ERA. Eastman always believed that the ERA was a unifying document, it was a document that would protect all women. Because she, you know, she felt and she articulated this, I talk about this a bit in the book, that if the law distinguishes along the lines of gender for any reason, even as a protection, even as a privilege, then the law could decide to distinguish along the lines of gender for any other reason. (laughs) And that, she felt, was ultimately a problem that the feminist movement could not tolerate, could not allow. You know, and interestingly enough, in the current debates about the ERA, there now is significant sort of distrust of court decisions and legislation um, that has instituted a lot of equality, that has instituted what many scholars call a de facto ERA. Many feel that we have now, you know, since the 1990s or so, achieved through the courts and the legislatures, you know, what the ERA might have done had it finally been ratified before the original 1982 deadline. But many feminists are now articulating, you know, in support of the ERA, some of the the questions, the problems that Eastman articulated. So, Amy, she co-founded the American Civil Liberties Union. Tell us how that came about. Well, um, the ACLU was born of the anti-war movement. Um, In fact, it was born of an organization that Eastman was the executive secretary of, which today would be the executive director of, um, called the American Union Against Militarism. Uh, it was a radical internationalist anti-war uh, movement that uh, that was working against war to try to end war around the world permanently. They were, you know, seeking world peace and world federation um, as the way to achieve and maintain uh, world peace. Um, well, once the United States entered World War I in 1917, in April of 1917, um, the Wilson administration uh, signaled and articulated that the kind of anti-war dissent that they had been doing in the American Union against militarism would no longer be tolerated. Um, the Espionage Act was passed, and then uh, in the following year, 1918, the Sedition Act was passed to suppress dissent, um, you know, to suppress uh, the articulation of anything that would Um, in the eyes of the administration, uh, harm the American war effort. 
Um, and the organization, among other organizations that were affected by this, the, you know, the socialist press and socialist organizations, which had long been, been anti-war, um, were also, of course, repressed and affected by this. Many other radicals were affected by this problem, uh, by this legislation. Um, and uh, this direction in this country, the kind of, you know, compulsory patriotism that really came along with um, the entry into the war and um, the alien, the um, uh, Sedition Acts and the Espionage Act. Um, but um, the American Union Against Militarism made an organizational decision to overtly try to fight it. Um, and it was out of that effort that the ACLU emerged. You know, they wanted to protect their rights, um, argued that their right to protest against their government, their right to, you know, meet and assemble um, and write, uh, uh, you know, against the war was guaranteed to them, was in, in some ways, um, to Eastman anyway, a kind of natural right that one had in a democratic society. This uh, was a very controversial position to take, um, not only in the general public, but even within the American Union Against Militarism. And many of the uh, the leadership um, did not want to, did not feel it was appropriate, did not want to take the risks in, um, you know, in appearing to oppose the government. Um, and Eastman's, you know, kind of founding status um, of the ACLU was that she was the one who proposed and managed to kind of politic among her colleagues to get past the idea that they had to continue this work, that their, you know, their anti-war work and their internationalist work, their democratic work was meaningless if they didn't protect these, what she considered to be natural, basic rights, um, even in wartime. So she wrote a memo and she, uh, you know, proposing that um, her, you know, instead of allowing the organization to split from the inside over this question, splitting the leadership was so divided, instead of allowing that to happen, they would form a separate organization that would be a collaborating organization uh, with the American Union Against Militarism and their internationalist anti-war agenda but that they would also have a separate focused organization to fight for civil liberties during wartime and forever after. Um, and so um, she succeeded in convincing her colleagues to do that. Uh, and in the early days uh, was, uh, you know, overseeing that, you know, kind of that, that effort. Um, however, she didn't ultimately um, maintain her status as the, you know, kind of executive director of that new group, um, although she wanted to, uh, because she was pregnant. And she ended up um, having her first child uh, in March of 1917, right before the U.S. entered the war. Um, and this kind of took her out of the loop. It was a difficult pregnancy. Um, she had bed rest for three months after, and she uh, was not, um, you know, that, um, you know, that that absence as well as her kind of gendered maternal status um, went a long way in, you know, making it impossible for her to maintain her leadership position. Um, in the new organization. Explain. Now, I should also add quickly that, you know, uh, there were other reasons. That was not the only reason. Um, there were other, you know, she had other radical associations and other actions that she had taken and positions that she had taken that um, were very controversial within the organization. Um, but, you know, to my reading, really the main reason she wasn't able to overcome some of those differences and um, at least maintain more control, if not end up, you know, sort of directing the new organization as 
as she had hoped to and as she wanted to was really because of that of, of that maternity leave and because of her uh, giving birth to her first child. So explain how she handled being married and being a mother. She struggled with it, you know, as many as many uh, you know working mothers, working parents um, do today. Um, she was, you know, constantly trying to innovate um, different ways to make marriage and family feminist. Um, to find different ways of balancing marriage and family so that, you know, women could maintain their autonomy, so that women could work outside the home if they chose to, um, uh, or, or um, to be, you know, remunerated and an equal partner in distributing family funds, even if they were stay-at-home mothers. Um, in an unpublished manuscript that I discovered, um, she, you know, proposed wages for wives in sometime in the early 1920s. It was an unpublished manuscript, so I don't know the exact date. Um, but she, you know, she was looking at ways to create egalitarian marriage for um, for women, despite you know, and allowing women whatever other choices they wanted in the ways um, they they would organize their marriages and organize their family lives. Um, one of her biggest experiments was she um, tried to live separately from her husband. She she wrote an article about this published in Cosmopolitan in 1923 called "Marriage Under Two Roofs." And they each had their independent households um, and their independent lives and their independent work, but they shared, uh, you know, the support of their children. Um, and that was her idea of a way to maintain a family, maintain equal investment between herself and her husband, Walter Fuller, um, in the development, the growth, the support of their children, um, but would give them um, the freedom to work outside the home and to leave independent lives. And also, she emphasized in that article, um, the freedom to pursue, you know, a kind of marriage that lacked, you know, as many compulsory components as possible. Um, you know, she wanted, you know, she, she wrote that you know this way they would have a more a more natural um, experience of sexuality and of romantic love um, because every time that you would choose to spend the night together she wrote you did it because you wanted to you'd made a date and you wanted to do that and there was no sense of any um, kind of compulsory arrangements embedded in in, in um, the expectations of of marital life and of the marriage contract. Um, and so in many ways, that arrangement she found, um, you know, did institute a better marriage, a more feminist marriage, um, although she continued to struggle with the fact that ultimately, you know, she was de facto a single mother. The children both lived with her. That's what she wanted. Um, but that also then came along with all the additional responsibilities that, you know, that single mothers uh, struggle with uh, alone. Um, and, you know, that remained a kind of an unresolved issue for her. Um, she wrote a number of letters, you know, very poignantly describing what sounded very familiar to me um, as a working parent and, you know, many others that I, that I know and have studied and read about who are working parents, um, that, you know, just how hard it was on her um, to, you know, to try to earn a living and support her children and also be um, a supportive parent um, and a loving mother um, and also, uh, a, you know, an, an involved and egalitarian wife. Finally, I know that you said that she didn't like to pick among the different areas that she was interested in. But if you had to pick to say what her greatest legacy is today, what would it be? 
Well, honestly, I think her greatest legacy is the fact that she was this proto, you know, intersectionalist, right? That she, you know, she tried to find the bridges among all these different movements, um, which is very much a kind of driving force and driving question in um, in activism as well as kind of scholarship and uh, intellectualism on the left today. Um, I, you know, I think that the problems um, that it raises, you know, that her that her loss, right, that that losing her her disappearance raises. Um, you know, really are a lesson to us um, and are something that, you know, can teach us a lot about how we might do things differently in the 21st century. Um, the particular, you know, her achievements as well as her altercations with various leaders and groups, the, the struggles that she had in trying to bridge all these different movements um, in, a, in a democratic way, in an egalitarian way, um, you know, I think teach us an enormous amount about how far we've come and how far we still have to go if we're going to, um, you know, kind of make democratic progress on democratic terms and achieve the kind of equality that is visible and is, you know, has been articulated, um, but, you know, is still, you know, so far um, beyond our beyond our grasp. Thanks for being on Bloomberg Law, Amy. That's Amy Aronson. Her new book is called Crystal Eastman, A Revolutionary Life. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. Remember, you can listen to all the latest legal topics in the news anytime on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grossell. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show tomorrow night at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.